0: you mm-hmm.
1: Dr. Lachter, I have a question about whether or not you've been able to have any experiences with talking to abusers about the kinds of things that you're discussing with Gene. whether or not that's a part of your research, or if you've been able to get any insights into what is in their heads when you discuss this.
2: Mostly, I understand the abusers through the victims. Sometimes I'll get a very step-by-step description of what they do, what they say, of how the emotion that they have. Is it like cold, sadistic, mocking, ridicule, or is it ferocious, or is it dependent, needy? I love you, you know, nobody else. Your mother doesn't love me, but you love me, and I love that kind of thing. I mostly... I understand the abuser's mind from the descriptions by the victims. The limited direct work with abusers, you don't want to mix those people in your waiting room. I did a couple of extensive psychological evaluations. I wouldn't say I would get as deep as so like one in a prison, another in a day where nobody else was coming in. I reserved the whole day. I don't think I'm going to level with you anyway about what they're thinking and How many of them know why they're doing what they're doing? And even if they were very badly abused and now they're directing that into victimizing somebody else, usually they're doing that as a defense against knowing their own abuse. So instead of facing their own terror and helplessness, betrayal, all of that, they switch to the top dog. Position to defend against awareness of what it was to be the underdog. And they're usually, as far as knowing why they do it, I wouldn't say the insight would usually be good. Otherwise, they wouldn't be doing it. Right. When you talk about ritual abuse, especially if the kid is born into it and they're abused in their family and they're abused for 20 or 30 or 40 years, you're going to have abuser parts. And you can understand a lot about. The mind of an abuser from an abuser personality within a victim. And it usually is what I just described. It's a last-ditch attempt at psychological survival. You just can't take being a victim anymore. You can't take the helplessness. The rage has to find some direction. Having your heart broken over and over is too hard. It's easier to be the person who's doing the hurting than to be the one who's hurt. So I would say I can get a lot of insight about the abuser's mind from personalities who adopt that position, maybe sometimes only within the abuse, especially when they're being coerced to hurt others. But no, I'm not a specialist in working with sex offenders, and I don't have a whole lot of that. Thank you. Jean, can I just go back? Because there was like a missing piece in what you described that I think the listeners would want to understand. Sure. Okay, so you were talking about how, is it okay to use the guy's name or do you
3: have a... Oh, that's perfectly fine. You don't plan. your head. You wouldn't have to call him or something? I good. Yeah. yeah,
2: I think sometimes it's asshole. Okay, let's go with asshole. Because I really find that the name of the abuser is just really bad for people to- you know, I think that I'm going
3: to interject very really quickly. He put himself as my protector. Everything that I experienced, except for things he did to me, he was protecting me. He took the stance of my uncle by the door. So you have to understand that part of what I continue to work on throughout my therapy is that he's still my protector. So for me to be really angry, enraged with him, it's only in the past couple years since I was able to start talking about this and put my name on this, that I started connecting to that anger. But I still, on some level, dealing with, unfortunately, he wanted to be my father. He told me he wanted to be my father, that he would protect me. He took on all of that, and yet it was none of it to be true. So his name doesn't bother me. Magnus' name bothers me more. Is that right? Yes. But Magnus is who I went into in the confessional. And Magnus is the one that, that I believe he felt there was a gold nugget just got dropped in his lap. And Magnus is the one that took me into, and yet Magnus was the more, if you were to say, to abusers, the duplicity or do this is just kind of, I believe that there are abusers who are taking it at the comps or looking for their prey and they find it. I think there are others that are deliberate and well thought out in what they're doing. And I think Magnus and Maskell portrayed both. He was, Magnus was the one that was more, it fell in his lap, that he was looking and that's what he took was came. I think Maskell found out about it and I think Maskell had a deliberate approach to what he was doing. But Magnus is the one that I feel more, I don't like his name. More don't like mascals. and I hate to say that because, really, everybody who's listening, I do hate him. I, hate him. I hate him. I hate him. I hate him. But I'm talking about as a survivor, as a victim. What I continue to still work on. I mean, it's the whole Stockholm syndrome, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah. And there was someone else within the room. See, you have to remember a lot of people were in that room, and there was another person that I literally, you know, was called his. I thought I was in love with. I think a lot of the women. Who are listening, who have been abused from over there, will have to admit at some point, or maybe already have, he was my protector. He was my, he took one, whatever it was he he got from you, he reused. So he reused that in me. Someone else It might have been, he was their lover. No different people have spoken of that. They thought, it's like, whatever he could do, that's the predator. Whatever he could connect into and reuse it or take advantage of it. So for me, it was not, there was someone else in the room that was, quote unquote, my uh, boyfriend, lover, whatever. But that was also part of the game, too. But no, Maskell was truly set himself up as my protector, as my father, as my uncle, as my familiar.
2: Okay, so we've got a young a younger perpetrator set up to be the one that you that they want you to be in love with
3: a different perpetrator This was yes. someone I'm not speaking of
2: yeah, yeah uh, yes okay, I understand that, so this whole thing right. is orchestrated, so they're gonna they're gonna get you oh, in, yeah. they got the one a younger perpetrator set up that they're gonna have that person manipulate you to believe that you're in love with each other we got right Marcus Maskell who's trying to make you believe that He's going to ensure your survival and stop worse things. What did he try to make you believe he was going to protect you
3: from? At first, he was protecting me from anyone finding out how bad I was. But the counseling was all kind of foreplay, if we want to call it that. So the counseling at the beginning, that's how I would say, that he was drawing me in. he was using the area of where he found me, which was in the confessional. He knew then my faith mattered. They also had already told me that God couldn't forgive me, so they had me hooked. Then that progressed. Then it became he was protecting me from anyone finding out how much of a whore I was and how evil I was. When after he took me to Kathy's body and began to brainwash me to believe that I actually not only was responsible but killed her, then he was protecting me verbally. Physically, in any way you could possibly imagine, he was protecting me from anyone finding out what I had done. From criminal and, Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. It was even, it was me who did it. I don't know at what point, you'll see this when you get my little book. What point did I become the orchestrator in the room? At what point did I become the God that I had gone to be forgiven? At what point was I the one? That felt as if I were making everything in the room happen. I don't know. there was, But I, I'm going to tell you another thing, and you can tell me if you have heard this before. I felt I was always running five steps ahead of him. In fact, like there's a deep spiritual level. I'm not talking religious. I'm talking spiritual. There was a spiritual warfare of some sort going on. I was running five steps ahead of him. And then there was the psychological level where my brain had already taken on the ability to dissociate and to re- I've found so many aspects of myself. I do feel, then there's the physical. And the physical, we never talked about. It was never spoken of within the Catholic faith, within the body was not the main focus. So when the body responds, when the body has different Needs or wants protection, keep me safe because I it was as if I always felt that I was five steps ahead of him. And at one particular point, I knew I was done, and that now, in order for me to get out of that school, I would do whatever in the hell she wanted me to do. That was the only way I was going to stay alive. I know that now. So all the work i've done so i encourage everyone to continue their therapy but i didn't know it then and i didn't know when i first started remembering so have you heard people talk about and my therapist understands because we kind of work on this level but it's as if you're running on some level ahead of them you're trying even though you're just, basically, you have been dehumanized. You don't even have, it's a crime against humanity. We don't even have the right to breathe. We don't have the right to flee. We don't have the right to fight. The drugs, the hypnosis, all the things you use. So for me, I felt that I was up to a certain point, always running a few steps ahead, trying to to keep him from getting whatever that jewel was that he seemed to be looking for. You know what I mean?
4: In our ongoing journey dissecting real-life mysteries, I've found a perfect companion in a game that not only captivates, but also lets me step into the shoes of a detective in the glamorous 1920s, June's Journey. As someone who's delved deep into the game, playing through the intriguing scenarios of June Parker, I can personally vouch for its immersive experience. In June's Journey, you unravel the mystery of June Parker's sister's murder. Each scene is a visual and intellectual puzzle, with hidden clues scattered across beautifully crafted locations. What I've enjoyed most is the depths of the storyline. Each chapter peels back a layer of this thrilling narrative, revealing danger, mystery, and romance. Besides the allure of solving mysteries, the game lets you design and customize your own luxurious estate island. Building my estate has been a delightful escape offering a creative break from the intense narratives we tackle on the podcast. For those of you who enjoy the blend of history, mystery, and narrative depth we explore on this podcast, June's Journey offers a chance to live out those elements in a beautifully interactive setting. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android, and join me in this ongoing quest to uncover hidden truths and solve complex mysteries.
2: Yes, and you felt
3: that you managed to do that ultimately. Ultimately, I hid the jewel within the deeper self. Yes, I believe that at that point when I knew I either will kill myself, I will do whatever I have to do to get the hell out of here. I believe at that point within that deeper level, I put the jewel somewhere else that he would never get.
2: Yes, I think that's what they're going for. And I do believe that many victims do a lot to protect that. They've got sometimes a hidden, original, very little, non-abused self that is way more deeply hidden than any of the other personalities, about something even a little bit more deeper than that, something about the soul, soul, right? Something about soul or spirit or... And then even though... In maybe the subjective main part of your consciousness during the abuse, it feels like he's running the show somewhere deep within you. You have your own opinions of him. You're spiritually way ahead of him in terms of um, wisdom and knowing that even though he's making you feel you're bad and he's godly and ordained somewhere inside of you, you know that he's bad. And you're godly or something. Mm -hmm. Is that kind of what you're talking about?
3: Yes, that's what I'm learning now about myself. What I'm learning now is that um, I always thought I was stupid and I'm sure other survivors will amen to that. I always, I have no idea how many classes I actually was sitting in. And I do feel that that's another conditioning. I lived my life thinking I was stupid, that I was slow, that I was the dumb blonde. And I do think that what I realized when I started to remember and I had a really, I've, I've had a couple of really good therapists, but the first one was amazing. And what I started to understand was the energy and the effort that it takes to hold the trash can lid down, to keep all of this contained. There's no more energy left to study or to get good grades or pass any kind of job application. Did you all without realizing it? holding the trash can lid down because you think everything that is over there that's separate from you is trash because that's what you were told so i yes i do believe that i started to understand as i began to connect more with myself that you know what i that takes a lot we are really pretty we're like geniuses walking around all of you survivors listening that we're still alive we were able to outwit him. We were able to, why am I even talking about this? He made very clear within my whole being, this would never, ever be talked about again. We're pretty smart. And depth the spirituality is what brought this up. It, all of my memories, Dr. Lactor came through my quiet prayer. And I mean that. I mean it 100%. Because a survivor is not going to remember these things with someone else there. It's too vulnerable. We have been hurt in that space of vulnerability. I found that it was in the quiet of my prayer where it would come up and then I could take it to someone to help me. So that was my personal. So yes, I do feel that I'm learning more about how deeply spiritual my spiritual walk really is. Right, and that this was a spiritual battle. Yes, I still feel that very strongly.
1: Yeah, I understand. I had an observation just while I was listening to what Jean was saying. It sounds to me like there was a piece of Jean that was the person she was born with that was going to triumph over evil. That there, her inner strength was surviving, even though it was just a, in a small place in her that allowed her to be. Wise and smart and sharp, and figure out how to get ahead of what was going on. And to me, that just affirms that we all basically can triumph over evil. It sounds really trite, but I mean it sincerely. The other question I have about the integration I'm just learning a lot about this. What are some other things, like Jane talks about her quiet prayer time? What are some other things that happen? That cause members of abuse to begin to be able to integrate. Is it life events? How do they get to that point where they begin to realize what happened to them, and what they can do about it? So you're talking about integration of memories. What are some things that cause them to say, "I know that I was a couple different identities to survive, and now I want to be my own true oneself." Like, why? How is that? How does that come about if they're not already in therapy
2: okay so now you're asking two questions <laughs> okay you're talking about integration realization that you have identities yes and integration of memories that were previously associated okay. so two questions in one and they are they are related questions okay i'm gonna say something funny but also true a head injury <laughs> that's what has happened to some of the one of the survivors yeah, some people had no memory of any of the other parallel nightmarish life that they had led or that they were still living until they had a major head injury. <laughs> Somehow everything uh, shook up and suddenly everything came pouring in, but I'm, that's not a recommended route. I would say love is good for that. Uh, safety, sometimes it can be... Coming upon information, I one client I worked with saw a commercial in probably 1980. The first time these commercials came out, when she was 13 years old or so, and it said, "If somebody is hurting you or touching you the wrong way or something like that, it's not your fault." And that was just that one little Mm -hmm. thing completely disrupted the mental framework that the abuser had set up and allowed her to say. No, Kind of what Jane was talking about. That was the moment where she said, wait a second, I'm the good person here and you're the bad person here. And it was a long, long, long decades, long road after that. But that was the critical moment. It can be a video game, a movie, a book, something that wakes up the self-compassion and Righteous anger. Sometimes it is therapy where a person has other symptoms because they're holding the trash can can lid down, right? So hard, and the anxiety is coming out. Or they're on a treadmill. I like to think of those little hamster wheels. they are running so hard, trying to stay busy, trying to do everything. And there's this cloud of memory right behind them, and they're trying to outrun it. And they're running themselves into the ground and discover that they were running away from horrible memories for decades. Sometimes I think it's maturity, having gotten past some of the life tasks of a 20-year-old. So now I've proven to myself that I can be an independent person. I've conquered the basic challenges of life and proven to myself that I have the strength to do all of that and now I'm strong enough to open up to things that I wouldn't have been able to think about before. I'm sure there's a hundred other things I'm not thinking of right now. But in therapy, when you come in with other symptoms and the therapist starts asking questions, you, what? why do you think? You're very afraid of people. You're You're afraid to sit in the classroom. You're afraid to walk into a store. What is it that you fear what do you what do you fear might happen or what are you thinking is in the minds of the other people and then that can open up they're thinking that i'm no good or i'm afraid they're going to hurt me or afraid they're going to knock into me or i'm afraid of physical danger or whatever or you know just all kinds of things can open it up
4: dr like the abuse that you saw from watching the keepers as well as from hearing jean explain more about what she went through would you say that this type of abuse is ritual abuse?
2: It's horrible abuse. It's orchestrated. It's calculated. It's networked. It's sadistic. It's psychologically manipulative. It's intelligent. It uses the authority of deities to make it more binding, terrifying, humiliating, Condemning. So it's calculated in all of those ways. I sounds like there's hypnosis involved. That would fit many people's definition of ritual abuse. What does it even matter? Now, some people who have been subjected to the kind of ritual abuse where they were born into it, they were deliberately split, personalities were induced to form deliberately by the time they were three years old, they were made to hurt and kill animals. And I won't even go further at a very young age. Malevolent deities were used to terrorize them. They were made to believe they married these deities. People who went through that kind of thing um, may say this is not ritual abuse because it doesn't include those particular uh, things. But, you know, what matters is the paragraph, not the word. What matters is how devastating the abuse was. Have some people been subjected to even more devastating stuff? Yes. Does that make this less devastating to the people who were subjected to this? No, I'm not God. And (laughs) unlike these abusers, I have no interest in (laughs) claiming any special powers. It depends on the definition that that a person would use. And I don't think it matters. I think what matters is figuring out the specifics that were done and how the mind was manipulated and all the tactics that were used. So getting into the specifics of what they did and the effects that it had and how calculated it was, like to realize that the feeling of him being a protector was a calculated goal of this guy and how he did it, specifically how he orchestrated that. That's what's important for healing. To see, to remember all the ways that he set that up and all the ways he exploited the survival instinct, the normal attachment, dependence, pack animal stuff that we're all made of, the need for love. It's the gold. The gold is in the details.
4: Is ritual abuse a diagnosis?
2: No. Is clergy abuse a diagnosis? No. Is incest a diagnosis? No. Those are phrases that describe particular kinds of abuse. Diagnoses are, they're labels for the psychological impact of those things. PTSD is a diagnosis. Associative amnesia is a diagnosis. Dissociative identity disorder is a diagnosis. Anxiety, depression, those are diagnoses. Clinically, it does matter what kind of abuse the person was subjected to, but not the word. For instance, take clergy abuse. Think about all the definitions of what that would include. Does it mean any abuse by a clergy? Okay, maybe. But there's a whole spectrum of severity, right? So this is a severe case, obviously. Murder and terrorization and whole network manipulation of the mind. And this is very severe. And then you could have clergy abuse that's less severe. Maybe it happened only once. Maybe it wasn't terrifying. Maybe it was sexual touching without, you know, pain or terror. Or, or maybe it's these terms are not really helpful. Even diagnoses are not very helpful. Doesn't really tell us anything. What do, What tells us something is like a general a story. The story tells us something.
4: You mentioned this a second ago as an official diagnosis. But what exactly is dissociative identity? To- I'm
2: not going to go DSM on you. Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. I'll go more descriptive. So it's when a person has been subjected to trauma that was so overwhelming that the part of the psyche that was there originally could not bear maintaining consciousness of it and relegates the awareness of either the, it could be shame, it can be terror, it can be rage, into other aspects of self that become associated with their own sense of self. I have a part in me named Sam who is full of rage. I couldn't afford to be uh, angry at my parents who were abusing me because I depended on them, and I, if they knew I was angry, they would have hurt me even more because I had to be completely submissive and compliant, so I have this other part of me that carries this rage, and that part eventually develops a name for itself, and it's its own trajectory, and I've got you know, another part that holds the memories of the sexual abuse because I can't stand knowing that in the part of me who's going to school and making friends and Trying to read a book and keeping the trash can lid down. I got another part of me who I've got the abuse holders. I've got the shame holders. I've got the part who wants to die. Of all of these, and maybe if the I got one who holds the memories of the violent abuse, one who holds the sexual abuse. I got another one who does the sexual response. So my abuser requires me to sexually respond, and I can't bear. Knowing that in my consciousness, so I create a part who does that for me. That's her job. That's all she does. And she thinks she likes it. And because somebody had to, because it was easier to like it than to hate it and feel victimized. So I created a part who likes it. It's okay with her. And that part pops in whenever I'm being put into that position. And so that would be a description of how it works.
4: What different ways? causes this
2: overwhelming trauma it can even be horrible medical trauma that's just more than the person can consciously bear feeling and but normally it's more abuse or being around abuse terrorizing abuse that feels really dangerous some kind of danger major threat is just too much to endure experiencing all the time
4: Dr. Loctor, why do some abusers work to cause victims to dissociate their memory?
2: Because they're assholes.
4: (laughs) There
3: you
2: go. (laughs) Because they're self-serving assholes who don't want their victims to tell, who don't want their victims to remember, who want completely compliant victims so that they can knock on door when the Victim is 25 years old with a certain pattern, knock any knock 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 and that pulls up the five-year-old who takes the sexual abuse, opens the door, and lets the guy come in and rape. They, they, they exploit all of that for access, to silence, and for their own little god trips.
4: Attention, friends. Are you ready to embark on a journey into the unknown this Mother's Day? Prepare to dive into the depths of your family's history with mylifeinabook.com. Each week, mylifeinabook.com sends intriguing questions, uncovering the thrilling tales of your mom's past, and then she can either type her response or use their voice-to-text feature. From daring escapes to nail-biting encounters, her life becomes an epic adventure waiting to be explored. This Mother's Day, give the gift of excitement and intrigue with mylifeinabook.com. It's a thrilling ride through your mom's life that you won't want to miss. I gave this to my mom last year, and let's just say I didn't know my mom as well as I thought I did. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use code SHANE at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use code SHANE for 10% off today.
0: You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator trying to
2: destroy that kernel that Jean was talking about, the kernel, the deepest, most innocent, pure, good, holy, knowing it's good, believing
3: in love, part of the self. They want to try to get to that. I'd like to interject, too, that I think with Maskell, for my personal, others will have other interpretations. But I believe that when Kathy Sesnick had enough information that she was not going to let this go on, especially since she was moving on. I believe she addressed him. When I came back to school after that summer, he was furious. And he told me, someone's been saying that I've been hurting the girls. You wouldn't say that, would you? As you just said, Dr. Lachter, I believe it was a God trip. I mean, it was a power trip. He thought that none of these girls with what he had already been doing would ever say anything. And when he found out that what he had been doing wasn't enough, it intensified. It could not afford anyone say it ever again. So I think that up to that point, God loved Kathy because I think that she did what she, her heart called her to. But I believe that Up to that point, he really thought he had us under his thumb. And when he had heard that someone was actually giving some indication that there was something going on that wasn't good, he was going to make sure that never happened again. So I do think that part of it is that God tripped that power, the power over others.
2: He wanted total control over all of these, full control of their
3: minds. I think that when she addressed him, what he realized was this was too business. That this could go it wasn't just gonna be the ladies in the office said, Okay, you're giving them a ride home. The teachers who would turn the blind eye for what I experienced, some of the teachers being in the room.
4: Since the beginning of Jean's memory surfacing, she refers to the chaplain's office on the first floor of Keough High School, as the room.
3: Why the police showing up like they're a part of protection. He had a game going on, and I think when she addressed him, I think he, talk about maturing, my personal experience was after that, it was beyond hell. I think that what he realized was, oh shit, this can get out of hand really quick. And I better draw it in because I thought what I was doing was enough.
2: Are you saying, Jean, that you actually experienced
3: him become more ferocious after you confronted him? 100%. He became more ferocious the day he called me to his room when she wasn't there at school anymore. Now, she was not dead nor missing, but he called me to his room. I was never called over the mouth speaker. I was always told, be there on D Day. I see. At this particular time. And so this was where I come back to school thinking it's all been taken care of because of what she had told me. And all of a sudden, I get actually called to his room. He had to remind me who the whore was in the room. He was making his point, you do not say anything about what goes on in this room.
2: I'm saying that was a metaphorical night to make you believe that you're the dirty one. I want to know what you
3: think about this. He was not alone. When people be consoled with the idea that he's dead or that the church wants the act or that was in the past, there were a lot of people in this ring. Yeah. They were young. They were all kinds of places they came from. They were being mentored by this man. They were actually being allowed to do things that they would never have thought to do. Once you pass that line, once you're given that permission, especially from somebody who has that kind of authority, then what do they do where do they go with that it doesn't matter that he's dead my concern is where did all those other johns let's say or abusers what have they been doing and if you don't call it what it is and if the archdiocese does not say That they were accountable for harboring this man and moving him around to have more victims, then those people are given permission to continue doing what they learned from the master.
2: I think all we can do is continue to put pressure on Catholic Church and all other institutions to develop true policies to honestly investigate on behalf of the truth, not to act in their own interest of protecting their institution. I'm sure you're familiar with the concepts of betrayal, trauma, and institution betrayal. Every institution does it. Church is notorious for it. Universities do it. Hospitals do it. Mental health clinics will often hide. Some therapist gets accused of abusing a patient, and the Clinic has a choice. They're either going to approach this with integrity to find out what really happened, or they're going to go, oh, wait a minute, the clinic might be sued and the supervisor might be sued. And then they jump into suppressing it and try to tell the patient that they blame the therapist to the patient, the other therapist, the patient disclosed this to, or whatever. Institutions act living organisms that protect themselves. And I I think that we've got it with Hollywood now where people are saying, wait a second, this is a serious big problem um, and we've got to put pressure on these institutions to honestly take these reports seriously. I don't know, maybe part of the problem is in the legal system, the way everybody's afraid of getting sued for one person's wrong. I've never had a psychological assistant because a friend of mine had an intern who molested his patient, and my friend got sued because he was her supervisee. But you can see how, you know, all of that can create a lot of problems. It's a a very serious problem. The government, right, when somebody in government gets accused of doing something, there's all kinds of political mechanisms that can protect. It's just really, you know... The victim is usually the little guy and the abuser is usually the person with a lot of power. I've got no simple answer for this except for us all to try to wake everybody up. Every little bit matters. Every yeah. If a hundred people listen to this show and feel more empowered and begin to not submit or go into therapy and reclaim their true self and all of those Uh, Things all matter, but it's a pretty big problem the way institutions protect themselves like an individual living organism rather than caring about the victims who are hurt within the institution.